Welcome to River City Church Podcast. We're glad you're listening. We believe this message will be encouraging and timely. To connect with us, find us on social or at rivercitychurch.co. Uh, today we're continuing our series better. Uh, we've actually been looking through, it's a, st- a study we've been doing on uh, kind of loosely through the book of Hebrews. Uh, the first week we looked at how Jesus is better. Uh, he brings a better hope, a better promise. In fact, the word better is used in the book of Hebrews, at least in the New King James Version, probably more than any other New Testament uh, book. And uh, I believe that's because the kind of core message of the book of Hebrews is to highlight and contrast how Jesus is one the fulfillment of all that came before in the Old Testament. He's both high priest and sacrifice. Uh, he's, he's the temple, the house of God that uh, has been, he's the, the veil has been torn in his flesh as he's offered his life uh, and the way has been made for us to enter into the presence of God into a uh, greater uh, temple which is heaven uh, in the New Testament. He, he contrasts that in the book of Hebrews but he describes how Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things that came before the priesthood, the sacrifice, all of that but also that he brings something better. So we have a better covenant based on better promises. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. If you missed that you can catch that on Spotify on our, our podcast podcast or on Apple Podcasts, but uh, there, there's this contrast that he, the writer of Hebrews makes. But then we get into uh, last week where we looked at, uh, we, the message was uh, ear piercing, and we talked about uh, a passage from Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, which is a quote from the book of Psalms. It says, today, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So so there's this, uh, this call, one in a response to Jesus. Uh, the book of Hebrews was written primarily to Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah, Jewish believers in Christ who who had experienced heavy persecution early on, many of them ostracized, cut off from their families uh, because of their faith and the relationship with Jesus, uh, cut off even from their own communities, things like that. They'd experienced all that. But over time, many of them had become spiritually dull, weary, and even some of them had become hard-hearted. They'd become discouraged, and and some of them were tempted to go back to uh, the Old Testament way, way of doing things. And so that's why the writer is pointing to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so here, we're going to be in chapter 5 today. Uh, chapter 5, we're going to talk about spiritual growth. Uh, so the title for this is Elements of Spiritual Growth. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 5, and we're going to get through as much of this as we can. There's a lot here, but Hebrews chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 7, says of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, as his earthly ministry, the Son of God became the Son of Man to offer his life on the cross, uh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Now, now, what's he describing here? Just to kind of set the context, he's describing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, is weeping and 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 and, and interceding, praying, and and it literally is crying. Well, it's his his body is in such travail that it, that Luke, a physician, describes that he's sweating drops of blood. So that's how intensely he's praying, he's crying out, he's interceding, and he's preparing to go the 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 critical moment of his earth life and ministry was about to happen in the cross. But before there was a cross, there was a garden. Before there was a cross, there was a garden. Just like sin came in a garden, death came to humanity in the Garden of Eden because of man's sin and disobedience to God. It was in a garden that the Son of Man, the second Adam, as the Bible would describe him, the Son of Man, our representative on our behalf, obeyed God. Sin came into a garden. Obedience through Christ came into the garden as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. And here he's describing, the writer of Hebrews is describing 
describing how he's even interceding and praying. And one of the things he prays is, if it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. But then he says something that you might remember, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, I think the, 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 what derailed humanity from the beginning and what still derails humanity is when we, we have the flip side of that. We say, God, your will's fine, but I'd rather have my will. You know, I don't even need there to be a devil to mess my life up. I just need to go my own way. <laughs> and, and, and so, so that's, that's when we choose our own course, we set our own course, we even become hard-hearted and turn against God. But you see the contrast of that where Jesus as the Son, capital S, he learned, verse 8, learned obedience by the things he suffered. So, so as the Son of Man, he's both demonstrating obedience to the Father, submitted to God, the Father, but he's also learning, it says, obedience by the things that he suffered. So everything he does is an act of perfect submission to God, submission to the Father, the will of God, and it's, it's perfect obedience. And so I want you to see this. Jesus was obedient on our behalf so that we could receive, us who had been disobedient, could receive forgiveness of our sins. And so it says, having been perfected or matured, that word perfected, Perfected means, means complete, uh, come to completion, come to fruition, come to maturity. He became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Uh, so verse 11 says, of whom we have much to say. Now the writer here is going to shift his focus. He says, I, I've got more I want to talk about, about this son, about this, about how he is the fulfillment of all these things and, and what he wants to do. But he says, he says, there's actually a problem. He says, they've actually, the, those that he had, was writing to became dull of hearing. Verse 11, he says, I've, I've, I've more to say and hard to explain, and the reason it's hard to explain is not because of the complexity of what he has to teach, but because of the condition of the heart of the hearers that are listening. And so the issue was, he's highlighting something that had begun to happen over time that I want to kind of tackle tonight, because I, I think it's one of the most subtle dangers, but it's, and, and we've got the slide for this, but point number one is the greatest enemy to our spiritual growth is spiritual dullness. The greatest enemy to spiritual growth is spiritual dullness. And, and sometimes we think, well, the greatest enemy would be, would be sin or compromise. Well, I, I think sin oftentimes is a fruit of what begins as dullness. So we get to this place where, as, as believers, we kind of just settle. We get used to good enough, uh, and, and we, we stop praying like we used to. We stop getting in the Word like we used to. We stop growing in our relationship with God. And no matter what, I've seen this in 17 years of ministry, people that were once burning for Jesus have become spiritually dull, even to the point, I mean, I, I saw it early on with one of my mentors, tragically, who's today not even serving God, and he was one of the most on fire people I'd ever met in my life was on the streets in LA reaching people for Jesus. I, I was, saw, saw so many things that God did through his life, uh, but because of dullness, and, and, and dullness is caused by a lot of things. It can be caused by uh, disobedience. It can be caused by hard-heartedness. It can be caused by being offended at people. And, and there's a lot of things that cause that dullness. I think one of the most uh, common is apathy. We just stop caring like we used to as much, or we just think, well, I'll just phone it in a little bit, or I, I won't keep growing like I was. And, and that's, so here's what he says, verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. He says, you've actually come to need milk and not solid food. So, so those of you who have kids, I have three children, um, kids don't start out eating, you know, filet mignon. Are you with me? 
Uh, and so, so a child has, has a mother's milk to provide everything it needs, nutrients and all these different things. But, but that's, there's a, as the children grow uh, and come to a place, they start growing their teeth, which teething's lots of fun. Those of you who have babies, uh, teething's lots of fun, but it's necessary. Sometimes growth isn't easy. Sometimes growth is even hurts a little bit, but growth is always necessary because of what God wants to do in our lives. And so, you know, there's, there's always this stage in my life where, you know, with my kids, there were certain things that were were okay at six months that weren't okay at two years. Certain things are okay at two years and aren't okay at 10 and 12 and on up. Are you, are you with me? And so as a believer, God's always wanting to grow us, stretch us, challenge us, change us, always for our good and to grow us in God. But he brings us from a place of, you know, you, you could start eating solid food after a while because it's more complex and it also provides different nutrients and, and things. And so that's that's the, the illustration that the writer is pointing to. He says, listen, uh, you've been at one stage where you're receiving milk, but he wants, uh, he wants a greater depth to come in our life. And that requires growing. It requires maturity. Maturity. It requires growing in the things of God. So he says, everyone, um, everyone, verse 13, who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is like a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But, but this is important. So the greatest enemy of spiritual growth is spiritual dullness. We need to overcome spiritual dullness. Ecclesiastes 10.10 gives this kind of picture. It says, if an axe is dull, uh, if an axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, he has to use more strength. So it's kind of common sense, but it's just this picture is, is, you know, this instrument that would cut, if you don't sharpen it, it takes much more effort and produces less effective results. And our spiritual life is the same way. If I don't have my life sharpened, if I don't have my faith sharpened, I don't, I'm not growing in the things of God and I settle into a place of spiritual dullness, there's things that take much more effort and have much less effectiveness. Are you with me? Prayer takes more effort, but there's less enjoyment in it. Getting in the Word takes more effort, but there's less enjoyment in it because it's coming from a place of spiritual dullness. And, and you know, there's lots of ways to sharpen a, a blade, but they all involve contact. They all involve contact. They all involve whether you're sharpening a knife or you're sharpening a, an axe. They're, they all involve some kind of contact that's to sharpen, to smooth out uh, jagged edges and to cause there to be a sharpness so that when you take the axe or take the knife or whatever it is, there's an ease in cutting. There's an effectiveness in using that tool. And so, so the writer here is pointing to something. He says there's a spiritual dullness that's come on the hearts of the people he's writing to. And he says this, it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't, it is not, it is not God's best for us as the church to live spiritually dull lives. <laughs> Romans, Paul said this, he, he, he wrote this, he said in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, he says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligent, fervent in spirit fervent in spirit. So there should be a passion in our lives ignited for God. There should be a passion in our lives, and, and it's something that doesn't just happen. It, just like, you know, if, if anybody likes campfires, you like to, like to build a fire. I like to go camping. I don't know what it was. I, I watched way too many Man vs. Wild, and I just want to prove I can do it. And uh, there's just something about, you know, making your own fire, and there's something about, you know, uh, and, and you, you know that if you build a fire, you've got to maintain the fire. 
If you want to keep the fire burning, you've got to continually add fuel to it. You've got to fan the flames. You've got to make sure it has enough oxygen and has enough fuel and, and it keeps burning and you're sustaining it. And, and when, you, when you put the right ingredients together and you keep it fueled, you don't have to try to work as hard to keep the fire burning. You just add the fuel. And so in our, in our walk with God, there's a dullness that comes when we don't add fuel to the fire, when we don't uh, allow our lives to be sharpened. Let me give you a couple things. Well, I already mentioned the Word, but the Word of God actually itself can be something that sharpens our life. So every day as I spend time in the Bible, I, I preached on, on God, the power of God's Word to transform our lives this Sunday. And so next Sunday we'll be talking about the Holy Spirit. But I want you to catch this because the, the, the Word of God actually sharpens my life and yours. Sometimes the reason we become spiritually dull is we stop feeding on this. We replace this with our own feelings, thoughts, and opinions, and those are fine, and those may be okay and good. They may not be bad, but the thing is, the flower fades, the grass withers, but God's word stands forever. And his word is what one of the means by which he intends to fuel our lives. Prayer sharpens us. As you have contact with the king, you have contact with the presence of God. As you spend time with God, your life can't help but be ignited. There's this, this Isaiah 6, there's this vision that Isaiah has of a throne of, of, of God's presence. The king is on the throne, and angels around the throne worshiping him, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And, and those closest to the throne are called seraphim. They're angels that are literally, seraphim means burning ones. And, and the burning ones are the ones close to the throne. They're not trying to manufacture. It's not some kind of like hyped up emotionalism. They're ignited because they're in contact with the king. It's impossible for my life to be ignited without contact with the king. Prayer and fasting does that, sharpens our edges. Uh, worship does that. Obeying his voice, I mentioned that last week. Today, if you'll hear his voice, I think the reason, well, I know, I know hardness, com hardness comes in our heart whenever we disobey what he said to do. It's that simple. So you, you remember the old hymn? Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but trust and obey. Like, it's, it is that simple. And, and I know that some of us, like, recoil at that word because it's that part of our flesh that says, not, it's not God's will but my will. Can I just tell you, that's the place where we always stop growing. At the last place of our obedience. The church sharpens us. We're sharpening community together as believers. As people together Lift us up, pray for us, encourage us. Sometimes even call to something inside of us that we may not recognize ourselves. I'm thankful for those people around me over the years that have been able to do that, that have sharpened my life. When I was becoming dull, that spoke to that. Paul deals with spiritual maturity in 1 Corinthians 3. I think we have the slides for this. Uh, Paul says, I, 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 brethren, couldn't speak to you as spiritual people, but as the carnal or babes in Christ. So he's using the same kind of language that the writer of Hebrews is. Uh, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for until now you're not able to receive it. Even now you're still not able, but he says, here's how, uh, for you are still carnal. Here's what spiritual immaturity looks like. Um, he says, for where there's envy, strife, and divisions. Sounds like some church committee meetings I've been to. <laughs> He says, are you not carnal, and listen to this statement, and behaving like mere men? 
I've heard this expression people use over the years. Well, I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm just a man. I'm just a woman. I, I, I can't help it. Just struggling. You know, it's just how I am. I have a temper. My, my parents had a temper. I have a temper. I'm just this. I'm just that. And, and, and Paul says, you're behaving like mere men. Like, as if that meant that they were called to more. <laughs> I thought that was the high mark. Like, I can't help it. He says, as the church, when there's envy and strife and division, he says, you're being carnal. What does it mean to be carnal? It means to be flesh-driven. Not spirit-led, but flesh-driven. I've said this before, Romans 8, 14. This is spiritual maturity. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So spiritual maturity is not how long I've been in church, but how long I've been, how well I've been led. And this is important because this is available for every single person. The day you say yes to Jesus, you have available him to lead you. That's why you see people who are brand new Christians that sometimes are having much more effectiveness in a short time than people who've been in church for 30 or 40 years. Not because God wants to work in their life more than others. It's just that somewhere along the way, we allow ourselves to become dulled. Whereas somebody who's just saying, I'm on fire for Jesus. I want to get going. Sign me up. God, whatever you want to do, I'll do. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. Whatever you want me to say, I'll say. And when we're at that place, there's a sharp edge ready to go. You know, I, I've just learned over the years, it's much more fun just to be on fire for Jesus <laughs> than it is to play church. It just is. Um, okay. Hebrews 6, let's go back to Hebrews. Uh, let's go to the very next chapter and verse. Uh, Hebrews 6, 1, therefore leaving the elementary discussion of the, the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let us go on to perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation. Now, he's going li- to list six things I want to just briefly cover for time, but these are six things that he points to that are a part of, he describes elementary principles of Christ. Now, now here he's not just talking about, for context, he's not even just talking about this. He's describing the whole context of what he's been dis- talking about in the book of Hebrews. It's funny. It's like one of the most complicated books in the New Testament. He calls it the elementary principles. <laughs> there you go. Um, but here's what he says. He says, we're, we're, we're going on to maturity. That's the goal, maturity, to grow. And we grow, he said in the last chapter, by reason of use, practice, putting it to work. And here he says, but we're not laying again the foundation. So when you build a foundation, any, any house has one foundation. Any building has one foundation. You don't have multiple foundations. You have one foundation. And when you build on that foundation, you don't redo the foundation. The foundation is necessary. In fact, it's absolutely critical. There's some things in a building you can live without. They may not be functionally good to have them missing, but you can live without them. You can't have a building without a foundation. And here's what he's pointing to. He says, he says you have to have a foundation, not laying again, and he lists six things. The foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God. The doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So let me go to point number two. Point number two is this. Spiritual growth requires building with the right foundation. Spiritual growth requires building with the right foundation. This is, this is so important. Uh, so years ago, I was uh, in Phoenix. They were building a skyscraper, 
in downtown Phoenix. And uh, I remember getting a, a peek through this, like all the construction fencing they had around it and they had all kinds of marketing materials and so you can only kind of see through the gaps in the fence and and I, I was curious so I saw through the gap and and what I saw was interesting to me because I don't know much about construction but here's what I saw they for the skyscraper that was going to be built very high they started by going very deep and so they had dug down multiple floors and multiple levels as they were going to be building not only underground for their parking garage and all the stuff, the floors that would go below the level, but to build the foundation. And I remember that uh, several months later as I was praying, and I was praying about what I thought was a difficult season. A season of waiting, a season of patience, a season of spiritual growth where God was doing something very deep on the inside of my heart. I was learning obedience in that season. Not my will, but your will. And while I'm in that moment, I'm in prayer, and I'm, I think it was, I remember being in worship at, at the front of our, our service, and, and the Lord reminded me of that picture, of what I had seen with that skyscraper. And, and what he spoke to my heart was this, that, that for me to take you higher, I've got to go deeper. And I can only go as high as you allow me to go deep. Everybody celebrates the stuff above the surface. God looks most at what's below the surface. Because it's not enough to build a high, because if you don't have the right foundation, it won't stand. Um, so, so elementary, he, he lists six things. The first is what I would describe as a new posture. It's a new posture. Uh, so these are two things. He says it's a posture towards God. It's, it's the posture of our heart directed towards God. So he says first that we, we have a foundation of repentance from dead works. Now, dead works describes two things. It describes sin. That's, that's something that is, it promises life but only produces death. The wages of sin is death. But it also describes religious works, things that, that can never bear fruit, can never produce life, can never change a single person. In fact, that was the, the issue for most of the, the, the audience that he's writing to. They knew dead works, but they didn't know Jesus fully. They were used to religion, and, and he's reminding them, don't go back to religion. You have Jesus. You have something better. So repentance from dead works is, of course, turning from sin, but it's also turning from anything that produces death. I wonder how much change would happen in our lives if we repented as much of religion as we did of our sin. I should say that again. There's also faith towards God. That's the kind of the flip side of that coin. One is a change of mind away from something. One is a direction toward that my response to God has to be faith. Faith is how I receive from God. Faith is how I draw near to God. I believe and I respond to him. So that's a new posture. There's also a new experience. He describes two things. He, he describes the doctrine of baptisms, plural. Some translations say washings, but here I, I want to point to this because there's in the New Testament we see first the baptism of being baptized in water, which we're signing up for, we're going to have as a church because there's something special about being baptized in water, which is a great picture of what happens when we're joined to Christ. Our old life is buried with him. Paul said that. We're buried with him in baptism and we're raised a new life. I like to describe baptism as this. It's a funeral and a wedding in one. We're celebrating our old life, being buried, and raised to new life in Jesus. It's a public declaration of that. 
We also see that uh, there's John the Baptist who would do that. He would baptize people in the Jordan River. One day he said, I'm baptizing you with water, but there's one coming after me. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. We're immersed in, filled with, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says the doctrine of laying on of hands. This is something that if, you know, if, if most people were to make a list of the elementary doctrines of, of, of our walk with God, very few people would probably list the laying on of hands, but it's actually a regular part of the experience of the church. I don't know if I give you a second one. First was a new posture, then there was a new experience because he wants us to experience new life. That's what baptism does. New power, that's what happens with the Holy Spirit baptism. But then we have a, an expression of ministry that happens in the church. And one of the major primary ways that he has the church carry out its mission is through the laying on of hands. So I, I have family members who are, love Jesus, love God. They think I'm crazy because I lay hands on people. <laughs> I'm like, it's in the Bible. Somewhere along the way, see... We, we, we build a theology based on our comfort level or our history and our tradition in the church instead of what the Bible actually says. Mark 16, these signs will follow those who believe, not pastors, not prophets, not evangelists, not missionaries. These signs will follow believers. It says they will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. That's Mark 16. Laying out of hands carries something the Bible describes called impartation. So, so when, when people had their hands laid on in the Bible, uh, let's look at this, Acts chapter 8, real quick. Acts chapter 8, verse 15. So if you ever wonder why in the world do they do that when they pray for people, why are we laying hands, you know. Um, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had not fallen upon uh, any of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands, they'd been baptized in water. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So when the church prayed and put hands on them and prayed for these people, they received the Holy Spirit. Romans 1.11, for I long to see you, Paul said, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. So some things are taught in the church and some things are caught. And one of the main ways that that happens, so, so, so I, over the years, I've you know, anytime I can see God's doing something, I'm like, pray for me. <laughs> you know, I want, I want to get all that God has, and if God's got gifts to hand out, I want to receive it. Are, are you with me? Uh, the last part of that is laying on of hands was for commissioning, Acts 13, verse 2. It says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. I say this all the time. Every person in here has a calling from God. And the way we're set apart to that calling and, and commissioned by the Holy Spirit is, is one, the word that he speaks, but also it says they, lay, they fasted, prayed, laid hands on them, and sent them away. So there's a commissioning that takes place. All right. Uh, the last two that he mentions in the foundation are resurrection and uh, eternal judgment. So, so looking at these real quick, um, this is an, an eternal perspective. And I think this is absolutely essential. We have to have, at any stage in our walk with God, have an eternal perspective. We have to recognize and know that this is not all there is. Are, are you with me? This is not all there is. This is like dress rehearsal. <laughs> Serious. Like this is what happens in the short span of a breath we call our lives impacts that. That, that, should, that should be a sobering reality. That's why, that's why Jesus told a parable and he says, what is a profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? 
So I can actually, I can have everything I've ever wanted. I can have every accolade I've ever wanted. I can have all that stuff, but that is, God actually says all of the, you know, there used to be trillions of dollars in the world, but I don't even know what we're up to now. <laughs> but but here's, here's, here's what he says. You could have all of that. And God, in comparison to the worth of your eternal soul, it's actually, if you were to trade your soul for all of it, everything, it's a bad deal. That's how much your heart, your life, your soul's worth. You have such value that heaven paid the highest price for you. And when we live with an eternal perspective, it means that things that would have bothered us don't bother us. At least not as much. When we're going through a difficult season, we're reminded that there's a greater promise. That there's something eternal that God's working out. That's what resurrection, that that one day, every believer in Jesus is going to be transformed. We're going to be resurrected, brought to life. I want you to catch this, 1 Corinthians 3. So there's, there's two judgments the Bible describes. One is the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20. We can't go there for time. But it's, it's, the, it's the final judgment. It's, it's like the, everybody's headed in that direction, whether they believe it or not, recognize it or not. And, and it says that every single person who's ever lived from all of human history is going to stand before God. That's what the Bible describes as the great white throne judgment. But as a believer who's been placed in Christ, forgiven of your sins, redeemed. See, that's, that's a judgment of heaven, hell. When you have Christ in your life, heaven's decided. But even as a believer, there's actually something a lot of people don't recognize. It's, it's what some theologians call the judgment seat of Christ. It's, it's not a judgment of heaven, hell. It's a judgment of reward. What did we do with what God gave us in our life? And at the end of the day, God's not going to look at us and go, why weren't you more like that person? The only thing he's looking at is what did we do with what he gave us? Because everything in my life, I'm a steward of. Every relationship, everything that's a, every gift, every talent, every resource, everything that God has placed in my life, I'm a steward of. And when I live with eternity in mind, I recognize that what I do with what he gives me matters. That's why I'm so passionate about reaching people, because there's one thing we're taking to heaven, it's people. 1 Corinthians 3, I want you to catch this. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. I know I give you a lot of Bible tonight, but I just want to teach you this. There's no other foundation but Jesus. So that's, that's what we have to build with. He says, if anyone builds on this foundation, with, he, he's going to describe six different things. Gold, silver, precious stones, something that is, can be in a fire and only be refined by the fire, not destroyed by it. And then there's wood, hay, and straw, which... If it touches the fire, it's burned up. And he says, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So that's why I tell people, don't worry about who recognizes what you're doing, who recognizes what God's doing in your life, because God sees all of it. God knows the price. He knows the sacrifice. He knows your faithfulness. He knows your heart. And there's going to be a day where it's going to be revealed. If anyone's work on which it 
he builds, endures, he receives a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he suffers loss. He himself will be saved. This is a believer's thing. Yet so as through fire. So, so this is the important thing as a believer. What we build has to be built to last. It's built for eternity, and we have to build. I said this several months ago, but let's build today for what's going to matter in the end. Because I can tell you, there's going to be some things in eternity that today matter a lot that won't matter at all. And, and, and that's not to, you know, gosh, it, it's not like you have to be super crazy every day and you're like, ah, you know. <laughs> but I want you to catch this. It matters today. Like what you do today matters. Your investment in your kids matters. Because you're building a foundation. You don't always see the results right now, but you're building something that's going to last. You're you're giving them an inheritance, not just of resource, but of faith. Your prayers for this city matter. Everything you do for Jesus matters. Number three, final point. Keep growing, and you're going to inherit God's promise. Keep growing, and you're going to inherit God's promise. Let's jump down to verse 11 for time. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Man, I'd hate to be one of these guys' grammar teacher. Because they had some long senses. Okay. He says, "I, I want you to see that you're not sluggish, verse 12, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. See, if he said like faith and passion, through faith and wisdom, through faith and careful strategic planning, through faith and really good list making. Any list making people in here? No? Okay. Just Jason. He says faith and patience. Like, I'd be down for all of the other stuff. Faith and patience. It's like, can we do anything but patience? But patience is where the growth happens. Through faith and patience, we inherit the promises. Well, I just don't see change yet in my life. Keep, keep getting in the word. Keep praying. Keep standing in faith. Keep growing close to Jesus. I, I, I've been praying for my spouse, and they seem like they're really far. You know, all hell's breaking loose. This is happening. That's happening. Keep praying. Because through faith and patience, we inherit the promise. Come on, church. Faith and patience. Don't become sluggish. Don't become weary. Don't become discouraged. And then he points to Abraham in verse 13. I'm almost done. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. God's looking around. I don't see anybody greater than me. No other name higher than mine, uh, so I'm going to swear by my name. And he says, surely blessing I will bless you, multiplying I'll multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, talking about Abraham, he obtained the promise. He obtained the promise. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the unchangeability, that's that word immutability, 
It, God doesn't change. So he says the, prom, the unchangeability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. And this hope we have as an anchor for the soul. This hope we have is an anchor for the soul. I don't know, I must have deleted it from my notes. Just a few verses before this, he says, you know, when God makes a promise, or when somebody swears by an oath, it's the end of all dispute. So, so here, here's the point. He says, when somebody, not just, you know, this isn't like, remember when you're a kid, pinky promise, you spit on your hand and shake on it. It lasts like five seconds. <laughs> the promise is maintained by the mood, maintained by the self-interest. That's not the way God works. When God makes a promise, it says that he swore by an oath by his own name. And, and, and he points to something that I want you to catch. He says, we have a hope that God is unchanging, and this hope is an anchor for the soul. You keep growing, and you're going to inherit the promise. But what do you do while you're waiting? I think this verse tells us. Stay anchored. Stay anchored to God. One of my favorite activities, I lived less than five minutes from the Manatee River in Florida. One of, I think, the prettiest rivers in the country. But the problem with being on the water in Florida is there's two things. And they both want to kill you. We have bull sharks that will literally eat a soda can. They'll eat anything. If there's a tire in the water, they'll eat it. They don't care. So, so you're an upgrade. <laughs> and there's gators, of course, because it's Florida. If you ever go to Florida and you see water, just assume there's a gator in it. Don't play in it. Don't jump in it. I don't care how hot and humid it is because you might not come back with all your legs. Okay. But, but here's, here's, I remember when I first got out there, I kayak. I could never convince my wife to do it. But the first time I went out, I realized I'd paddle up to a certain point and then I just wanted to just sit back and enjoy it. But because I was on a river, I would keep drifting until I got an anchor. And when I got an anchor, I could throw that anchor in there, and it would keep me fixed. No matter what the current was doing, no matter what was happening, I could stay in place. That's what an anchor does. It keeps you fixed. A lot of people are being shaken in the world today because they have no anchor, because they have no foundation. As a Christian, you have an anchor for your soul, and it's the presence of God. The presence behind the veil, he says. Would you stand to your feet? Let me pray with you. I gave you a lot tonight with this passage, but I want you to catch this. Believe it or not, I'm, I'm simplifying, trying to simplify the book of Hebrews as much as I can, but here's, here's the point. No matter where you are, the greatest enemy to your growth is spiritual dullness. Because God's not just after a moment, he's after a life. 
That's why what he does is always meant to be, maybe you encounter God at the revival a few months ago or at a service or on your own time with Jesus. And God did something special in your life, but I can tell you that's not the end of what God wants to do. But he does those things to invite us into a relationship with him. There's more. Maybe you've never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's more. The Christian life without the fullness of the Holy Spirit is like having a really nice car with no gas in the tank. It can look pretty, but it takes a whole lot of effort to get it to go anywhere. You got to get out and push. The Holy Spirit fills your life, empowers your life to do what God has called you to do. We believe this message will be encouraging and timely. To connect with us, find us on social or at rivercitychurch.co.